The scripture today comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And as we just heard, today is Hope for New York Sunday. So what we're going to do today is take a little bit of a break from our normal sermon series on Genesis, and we're going to take a look at the topic of mercy and generosity. Mercy and generosity. And it's an important topic because for the Christian... Mercy and generosity are not optional, but they're natural responses to Jesus. In Matthew 9, Jesus calls Matthew as a disciple. And Matthew, if you recall, was a tax collector. And tax collectors were hated by Jews because these were people who worked for the Roman oppressors. And they became rich by taking money from Jewish citizens. And Jesus goes and has dinner at Matthew's house. And all of Matthew's tax collector buddies come out. And the Pharisees, they go up to Jesus and they ask Jesus' disciples, why in the world is Jesus having a meal with people like that? I think that's a fair question, right? If, if you were a member of a community where there were notorious drug dealers and gang members, and if they were harming the community, and you found out that I was associating with the leaders of the gang and these notorious drug dealers, and your friends and family were directly harassed by these people, you would rightly ask me, why are you spending time with people like that? 
Well, Jesus offers a famous response to the Pharisees' questions. He says this in Matthew 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus says, said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quotes here the prophet Hosea, who said that God desired mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, not sacrifice. And I think that here in America, American evangelical Christianity is often reduced to an individual relationship with Jesus. So faith is about me and Jesus. It's about me getting into heaven. And what's often missing here, when you reduce Christianity to your personal faith, your personal relationship with Jesus, what often is neglected then is others. What Jesus says is more important than your attendance at church. More more important than your offerings and tithes, more important than that is mercy. Mercy. That means more to me. Because the whole mission of Jesus was to serve the sick, not the healthy. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was all about the marginalized, the friendless, the powerless, Women, children. Did you know that the longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Bible is the Samaritan woman? In John 4, he subverts all of the power dynamics of his culture. He prioritizes those that have the least over those who have the most. He prioritizes those who are socially last over the socially powerful or respected or popular. And he prioritizes the spiritual lost over the religious elites. Jesus has a special place in his heart and in his mission for the least, the last, and the lost. And so should we. And the way to do this is not to immediately focus on the least, the last, and the lost. Our immediate focus is vertical, which then informs the horizontal. What I mean is when we look to Jesus, when we understand what he's given for us, that will naturally cause us to love what he loves, to serve who he served. Deeper God love will always result in deeper neighbor love. The vertical fuels the horizontal. And so it begins by seeing Jesus. You know the words to the famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. 
My question for you today is this question, and I think it's the question that Jesus asks in our passage. Do you see? Do you see? More specifically, from our passage today, I want to ask you, how do you see yourself? How do you see Jesus? And then how do you see those who need to be seen? How do you see yourself? How do you see Jesus? How do you see those who need to be seen? So our passage today, it takes us to another dinner party. This time, not at a tax collector's house, but the house of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus is the guest of a man who is educated, he's respected, he's successful. It would be quite the honor to be the guest of honor at a dinner like this. So imagine your CEO or the senior, a senior partner in your firm or that famous influencer with millions of followers holds a dinner in your honor. This is a big deal. And because it was a formal dinner, it was probably in an outdoor open space like a courtyard. And the custom during this time was that people could come, even if they weren't invited, even if they were not official guests at the dinner, to, to watch and to, to listen in on the dinner conversation. So kind of picture a sort of backyard dinner in a multi-million dollar home. You have your infinity pool, you have your pickleball court, open bar, live music, and also people from the neighborhood just dropping by to observe in the background. And center stage is a very long table that's low to the ground. Pastor Aaron recently got to go see this famous painting of the Last Supper in Italy. I'm sure you've seen it before. And in this painting, what you'll notice is that Jesus and the disciples are kind of sitting European style around a table... But that is not what this meal looked like. So you, you, you have this table at ground level. And you have these long couches that are kind of turned around. So the back is leaning against the table. And the way that people ate back then, even at a formal meal, was kind of lying down. So you would lie down with your chest against the chair towards the table. Your feet would extend behind you outwards you would rest your head on your left arm and you would eat with your right arm. Kind of strange, right? But, but that's how people ate back then, especially at a formal meal like this. And the host would sit at the center. The guest of honor would be to his left. So Simon the Pharisee would be at the center of the table and Jesus would be to his immediate left. And verse 37, Luke says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. You know, Luke could have just said, hey, a woman dropped by, but he says, and behold. It's Luke saying, dun, 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 right? This is that record scratch moment that you see in movies when something happens at a party and someone knows to stop the music. And it's just this awkward silence. That's what's going on here. Luke tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
commentators unanimously agree that this woman was a prostitute. And everyone there knows it. You know, these dinner parties, they were open to the public. Anyone could come and show up and watch, but not people like her. And as soon as she shows up, everyone's staring at her. What is she doing here? Well, we find out, verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his tears, wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. You know, she approaches Jesus, doesn't say a word. Jesus probably doesn't even notice her because he's having a conversation. She just stands behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fall on his feet, and she wipes them with her hair and kisses his feet and anoints them with oil. And, and this is completely scandalous to everyone there. Because for an unmarried woman to touch an unmarried man, that was unacceptable. But for there to be intimate kissing of feet of an unmarried man, that's, and she does it repeatedly, that is scandalous. But she also does something really unthinkable. She lets down her hair in front of Jesus. For a woman to let her hair down in front of a man, even today in the Middle East, it is an act of total vulnerability and intimacy. It's, it's one step short of taking your clothes off. So can you just picture the scene? Everyone's just watching this unfold. Horrified silence. Everyone's wondering, what is their relationship? What is the nature of their relationship? Wait, do they know one another? Did something happen? It's obvious that these are not the actions of, of, of a stranger. What is the story here? And Luke tells us what Simon was thinking in verse 39. Simon says this, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So Simon's kind of connecting the dots. He's thinking very linearly, logically. If Jesus is a real prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching him. So either Jesus is not a prophet, he has no idea what, what sort of woman this is, or he is a prophet and he doesn't care that she's touching him. Neither scenario makes Jesus appealing to Simon. He just doesn't get it. And Jesus knows what Simon's thinking, and he tells a parable. And he tells him a parable about two debtors, one with a large debt and one with a small debt. The moneylender forgives both debts because neither can pay, and then Jesus asks Simon, which debtor will love the money lender more? The one with the big debt or the one with the small debt? And Simon answers, I, I suppose the one with the larger debt, and Simon is right. And then Jesus kind of connects the dots for Simon. Simon, when I came, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't give me a, a kiss. But she couldn't stop kissing me. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. She gets it. You don't get it. And then turning to the woman, Jesus tells her, 
Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that's the story in our passage today. And we have here the same Jesus, but two very different people with really opposite responses to Jesus. They're witnessing the same events, but they're seeing them very differently. So I want to look at how these people see themselves, how they see Jesus, and then how they see others. First, how do the woman and Simon see themselves? You know, I think in many ways they see themselves the way that everyone else sees them except for Jesus. She's obviously a sinful woman, while Simon is righteous. You know, Jesus talks about sin here, and he he uses financial terms, which I'm sure my finance friends in the room would appreciate. He equates sin to debt, sin to debt. And when Jesus is telling this parable, I think Simon and the woman would both agree that they're both debtors, right? Simon knows that sin is debt. He knows that debt has to be paid. But to Simon, his debt, not that big. Why? Because he's a Pharisee. Pharisees were really good at obeying the law. He knew his Bible. He did the right thing. He went to temple all the time. He tried to help people. He tried to live a good life. He tries to obey God. This woman, on the other hand, very obvious kind of the lifestyle that she's chosen. And she's not an innocent victim. You know, when Jesus talks about her, he doesn't say, oh, no, it's okay, you're not that bad. You're just a victim of your circumstances. You know, there are these entrenched gender disparities. There's this, the misogynistic culture. Jesus says, no, your sins are many. Jesus says both are sinners, and I think both of them would agree to that, but here's the difference. In the parable, the woman is the one with the larger debt. 500 versus 50 denarii. But the key to the parable is this. Neither could pay it. Neither could pay. 500 or 50, doesn't matter. Both debts are unpayable. In Simon's mind, and probably everyone's mind there, the woman's debt, probably unpayable. But Simon's debt, I think we could cover it. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's not enough. You don't have enough to cover this. You're not good enough. You're not rich enough to pay the debt. The woman knows that. She knows that instinctively. Her sin is not theoretical. She knows how big her debt is. She knows she can never repay such a debt. So they each view themselves very differently. And that's going to change the way they see Jesus. You know, for Simon, it's all, it's all numbers and figures. It's all, it's all business. It's a, it's a religion for him. Rules, principles, morals. For Simon, it's, it's transactional. I give this to God and God gives me this. It's transactional. But for the woman, it's deeply relational. You know, one thing I, I really don't like doing is I don't like borrowing money from friends. I hate that feeling, asking my friends for money or people I know for money. It, I, I just, I, I wouldn't do it. But I have no problem getting a mortgage, right? financing a car. Why? Because it's, 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 I'm dealing with an institution versus dealing with a person. 
It, it feels different to me. For Simon, the lender is an institution. It's religion. It's the temple system. It's the sacrificial system. It, it's an institution that he's dealing with. Sin is not that bad for him because it's not really hurting anybody. It's merely a transaction with an institution. But for the woman, the lender is Jesus. She gets that her sin is not harmless. It hurts the lender. It hurts Jesus. When you view sin through the prism of religion, it's, it's essentially just breaking a couple of rules. It's impersonal. But when you view sin through the prism of relationship, it's deeply personal. It's breaking the very heart of God. So if sin is not that big of a deal, if it's not that hurtful, then forgiveness of sin is also pretty uneventful. Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins, but Simon doesn't really care. For Simon, it's, it's not amazing grace, it's mediocre grace. He's not a wretch. He's a decent guy who tries, just needs a little help here and there. But for the woman, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Can I ask you today, how do you see yourself? Do you just need God to kind of help you out a bit? Or do you need him to save you? Are you a wretch that has been saved? You know, because of how differently Simon and the woman, they view themselves, it's going to really change the way they view Jesus. And what Jesus points out is that Simon kind of just does the bare minimum when it comes to Jesus. No water for my feet, no kiss, no oil. Jesus is just being treated like any other guest. Nothing special. He gets the same amount of care, same amount of attention that Simon would give to anybody or anybody else that he would invite. For Simon, Jesus is just another part of life. But for this woman, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. She brings an alabaster jar of oil. And you have to ask the question, why is she here? What is she trying to accomplish? It says that she brings an alabaster jar of oil. And what this was, it was a very small flask of perfume that was very expensive. It had this long, skinny neck so that if you were to kind of tip it and, and pour out the oil, you would get about a drop at a time. And, and what commentators say is that it was this extravagant accessory of fragrance and beauty. You know, not a lot of artificial fragrances back then. And what this was is it was essentially a tool of trade for prostitutes. It enhanced their desirability, their attractiveness. Her mission in this party is to pour out the perfume at the feet of Jesus. to anoint his feet with it. But the jar, remember, it's designed to let out a drop at a time. If she were to, to get rid of all of it, it would take all night. The only way to do it, to pour it out at Jesus, is to break it. Break the jar. And this was the most valuable thing she had. More than that, it's really the only power that she had. The only leverage she has in life, the only thing of value that she owns is this. 
And she's coming to Jesus to surrender it all. To surrender it all to him. Surrender her past, her way of life, her sin, everything. That's her mission. But as she enters the room, she reaches Jesus. She doesn't reach for her bottle to pour it out. She can't because she can't stop weeping. Tears pouring down her face onto the feet of Jesus. She can't speak or move. She just stands there at his feet weeping. The text says she just stands there. She stands and weeps. And then she bends down, lets down her hair, wipes his feet, kissing them. And finally, she takes that jar of perfume, breaks it, pours it all out over his feet. She gives him everything. She has nothing left to give. Simon, he wants impersonal, detached religion. No tears, no kissing, no touching. He wants discussion. He, she wants a relationship. You know, Tim Keller always used to say that nominal Christians find Jesus useful. Genuine Christians find Jesus beautiful. And I think that's important because I want to ask you today, how do you see Jesus? Is faith something you find useful to you? I feel good when I come to service. It feels good to belong to a community. But if it starts costing taking up too much of my time, I'm out. Is your faith something you kind of add on to your life? Is it something useful to you or is it central? Is it that beauty above all beauties that you could not live a day without? How beautiful is Jesus to you? Are you giving Jesus your jar? Everybody has a jar, right? For this woman, it was a jar of perfume. Everybody has something that's precious to them that they build their identity and worth upon. We all have it. It could be our careers. It could be our relationships. It could be our reputations. We all have a jar that we're holding on to that is the most important thing to us, the most valuable thing we have, and it's ours. Is Jesus beautiful enough to you that you would give that to him? that you would break that jar and pour it out at his feet. Is Jesus more valuable to you than what's in your jar? This woman has, has literally lost everything. She's lost her most valued possession. She's lost her profession. She's lost any earning potential. And if that were not enough, she's lost whatever reputation she had left. Because by tomorrow, guess what? The whole town is going to hear about this. She's got nothing left, literally nothing left. But I love what Jesus says to her. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace. 
peace. You know, the idea of peace in the Jewish world, it's not the absence of violence. Shalom, it means completion, completeness, wholeness, fullness. She's been stripped of everything. She's lost everything. But Jesus tells her, be full, be complete, be whole. The world would look at her and say, she has nothing. But Jesus tells her, you have everything. You have everything. How does Jesus bring that to shalom? By paying her debt. Because on the cross, Jesus is crucified. He cries out as he dies, it is finished. In the Greek, it's tetelestai. It is finished. That was a word that was written on receipts, and it meant this Paid in full. Because of the cross, Jesus can give this woman what she needs the most. Shalom. Wholeness. Completeness. Fullness. Peace. And the whole point of today is to remind us that there are so many in our city who need the shalom that only Jesus can bring. And here's the question for you today. Can you see those who need shalom? Do you see? You know, it's so sad that we've we've just witnessed one of the most tender and loving responses to Jesus, I think, in the whole Bible. Simon sees this unfold, and his immediate response is, well, is he really a prophet? If he was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. That's what he's thinking. He doesn't see. But right after Jesus tells the parable, Luke says this in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? You know, Jesus doesn't turn to Simon to talk to him. He turns to this woman. He looks at her. He asks Simon a very simple question. Do you see this woman? Why why would Jesus need to ask that question? Well, everyone sees this woman. Everyone at the party is looking at her. Of course, Simon sees her. But Jesus is asking this. No, 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 no. Do you see her? Because he doesn't really see her. He just sees a prostitute. He just sees a sinner. He just sees no one of consequence, no one of value. He doesn't see the woman. He doesn't see the person. But Jesus turns to the woman and he never turns away. He sees her. Not prostitute, not sinner, not her past, not nobody. And and I really want to emphasize this right now. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus sees you? You know, it's one of the most dehumanizing feelings that we can feel when we feel unseen, when we feel unvalued. That's a horrible feeling. In what ways are you feeling unseen this morning? Maybe you're in a marriage where you feel your spouse doesn't really see you. Maybe you're in a a profession where your workplace doesn't see you. 
Maybe racially as Asian Americans, you don't feel seen. In what ways today do you feel unseen, unvalued, overlooked, and unloved? Well, I want to say to you, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. Son, daughter, beloved. And if we see ourselves for who we really are, undeserving sinners, that's going to make us love Jesus deeply and relationally, not transactionally. And then it will make us see those who need to be seen. We're going to start seeing the least, the last, and the lost. Our hearts are going to naturally gravitate towards them in mercy and generosity. My wife and I, we were talking this past week about frequency illusion. Have you heard of frequency illusion? Right? You, you, you know if you're, if you're looking to buy a car and you start researching that car, all of a sudden on the road, all you see is that car. Right? My wife, she has this thing where she just keeps seeing 11-11 on the clock. And she has to mention it to me every time. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. It's 11-11 again. I'm like, no, you're just noticing it because it's on your radar. As Christians, I hope that we become really good at seeing that, that there's a frequency illusion to those who are in need, to those who need to be seen. We'll begin to look past our own needs. We'll gravitate towards the needs of others. Do you see yourself? Do you see Jesus? Do you see those in need? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this beautiful reminder of your love and your mercy for us. Help us to see ourselves the way we need to see ourselves, as undeserving sinners, but help us to see you as our beautiful Savior, not useful Savior, but beautiful Savior, and then help us to look past ourselves and to see those who need to be seen. Help us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.